Uh, I think sometimes when you are down and out like that and you suck it all, you reach in and get it. You reach down and get something that you didn't know you had. And that's what it was about. Hey, sports lovers, get ready for a deep dive into the legendary careers and lives of sports' biggest stars with Hall of Famers, the podcast. Hosted by the pros who guided and documented the amazing careers of these iconic athletes. More than just another interview, this is your all-access, all-season pass into what made these Hall of Fame legends great. From their humble beginnings and career highs to the breathtaking pressures they've faced, we're taking you from obscurity to the world stage of immortality. And the excitement doesn't stop there. Hall of Famers fuels the burning debate of true greatness. Who's the real GOAT? LeBron or MJ? Jim Brown or Barry Sanders? Barry Bonds or Aaron Judge? Wonder what these legends are up to now? Stick around. Our commentary explores all this and more with the most entertaining twists and turns you can't get anywhere else. This is your worldwide sports adventure. Hall of Famers is like no other podcast because it covers the all-time greats from all the major team sports. No matter what your favorite sport is, Hall of Famers has a story that will inspire you. Brace yourself for an unforgettable journey. Get ready for Hall of Famers, the podcast where legends never retire. Greetings and welcome to another episode of HOFs. My name is C. Lamont Smith and I am your host and I'm joined today by my co-host, Mr. Jared Bell of USA Today, who is a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee. Our guest today is a very special one. He was named Rookie of the Year in 1969 after being drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's a member of the College Football Hall of Fame. He was selected All-NFL five times in his career, and he was a 10-time Pro Bowl selection. He was Defensive Player of the Year twice in his career, and he is a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We'd like to welcome Mr. Charles Edward Green, a.k.a. Joe Green. <laughs> hey, those used to be fighting words, you know? <laughs> I don't want to fight you, Mr. Green. <laughs> I'm 75 plus one now, and I've matured a little bit. Thank you. That's good for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to HOS. It's a pleasure to have you here. My pleasure. I've always enjoyed talking with Mr. Bell, and I think this is our first time. It is. I have a question for you, and our audience is probably just curious about this because I refer to you as Charles, which is my first name, by the way. So we're, you're in good company. My first name is Charles. But tell our audience where the name Mean Joe Green came from. Well, I was always referred to as Joe in my high school days and even as, as a pickup all in the neighborhood. My, name, but my nickname was Joe. But when I get to, got to North Texas, my sophomore year, we were playing a team, Texas Western. Today is UTEP, University of Texas, and, and we played a pretty good game against those guys. Our defense did. Held them to a minus 44 yards lesson. But they were taking in total the, the sacks that we had. We had quite a few sacks in that game. Minus 44. Yes. And the group in the stands, in the corner of the stands, were... All of the black students were, go mean green, you look so good to me. 
that's how this started. It was in rhythm. Gold mean green, it looked so good to me. And it kind of reverberated throughout the stadium. And sports information director's wife was in the stands. And she kind of liked it. So she started uh, re- relaying that information to her husband. At the time, it was a gentleman named Greg Graham. Greg Graham. And he didn't buy it. But she stayed after him and finally convinced the football team it's not a bad thing. And it originated being green defense. And then it, they kind of liked what it was, the response they were getting from it. So it became the Mean Green football team. The whole team, the team name was the North Texas State Mean Green. Yeah. That's pretty tight. Yeah, it was, but they were green all along. Right. Green without the E. And then when I get drafted and go come to Pittsburgh, and they started referring to me as Mean Joe Green. So sports writer, the same guy that said, wrote the article, Joe Who. <laughs> wow. You remember wow. those articles, right? Yeah. <laughs> Joe Who. Wow. I'm going to show wow. you. Let me ask you this. So for the follow-up, did you like the nickname initially or did you not like it? I wasn't fond of it at all. I did my best to refute the nickname named Joe. Early in my rookie season, we went to play the Giants at Yankee Stadium at that time. And Fran Talkington was their quarterback. Mm-hmm. Hot day in New York. I mean, he'd been there many times. Early in September, and we were chasing Fran around and couldn't catch him. And, you know, Fran was one of the some lip. You know, he'd talk at you a little bit. Mm-hmm. You missed. Huh. You missed. <laughs> oh, really? And we had one guy to leave the field because he was getting too hot for him. Because he told us, he said, if you guys don't call time out, you'll be playing with 10 people. That's kind of how it was that day. And later on in the game, I hit Fred. I said, now, what do you think about that, mister? He said, Joe, look where you are. I'm five years out of battle, and by that time, I got hit the shoulder with, <laughs> with the flame. Yeah. I was five years out of bounds, and that was in New York. And my pursuit of trying to get the name dropped, was over. It's pretty fascinating because you are one of the nicest people that I've ever met, and especially in the NFL environment. Good compliment. Well, yeah, but you take that against the moniker. It just doesn't necessarily match up. Now, I'm speaking from somebody who is not playing on the field with you, right? saying that you're nice, and then I know there were different incidents during your career where you kind of let loose a little bit. I did, I did, I did, I did, sure. But when you're competing and you feel like you've been taken advantage of, you have to defend yourself. This is for not only me, this is for our team. You cheated all of us. So in order for me to not let that happen, you know, I just I got into a fight most of the time. You know, we can play football and you might beat me there, but if we go into a fight, you're gonna look <laughs> that was what I thought, but you know, some people beat me up pretty good. And and your rookie year, you guys were one and thirteen. I mean, you won four Super Bowl rings with the Steelers. Everybody knows that all NFL, 100th anniversary, one of the greatest ever. But 1-13, in 13, your rookie year, how did you deal with that? Oh, by getting tossed out of several ball games over here. <laughs> and losing. And that, that's really what it was about. Oh, my goodness. One game, we played Philadelphia. Frank and Tail. Been there. Yeah. And we were doing pretty good. Frenchie Fuqua set the rushing record that day, still relates today. And we were winning the ball game. We were winning the ball game until they had this wide receiver that got off on us. 
Bill Hawkins. And we were up at two touchdowns. And when, when Hawkins finished, we were down two touchdowns. And they were on one yard line. And I picked up the ball and threw it in the stands in the end zone and walked off the field. Because you were so disgusted with how to get so disgusted. And I don't remember getting a fine. I don't remember getting a, a message from the head coach or from the owner. But let me tell you, when when I retired, I walked in, into Mr. Rooney's office, Dave Rooney, and told him that this is going to be my last year. I'm going to retire. And he looked at me and he said, Joe, you remember that game, your second year when we played in Philadelphia and get through the ball in the stands? Nobody said a thing to me all these years, 13 years. Why did I, I'm saying this to myself while he's talking. Uh -huh. And he said, Joe, I felt the same way. That right there put it all into perspective for me. Of all the bad acting that I was doing, getting tossed out of ball games and having a fit with officials and hitting, hitting players and kicking them at times, that let me know that the ownership didn't think I was a bad guy. I was just competitive and wanted to win. And I think Rooney said it, too, to the press that he thought at that moment that you proved that's our guy. That's the guy that we need to have here. Because they were building this thing up. That was When you came in, that was Chuck Knoll's first year's coach and Terry Bradshaw, and, and you guys were just building it up into what it became. But I think Rooney said, hey, this is our guy. This is who we want in, in terms of the leader and the attitude. And that's what he let me know at that time, verbally, in the way he said it. But his mannerisms, the way that he ran that football team and the way he conversed with me at times, letting me know that's why I could do what I did. Because I, you know, I grew up, I played the same time Dwayne Thomas. Dwayne Thomas caught big term problems playing in Dallas. Right. His attitude wasn't much different than mine. Oh, that's the way I look at it. I, mm. You know, I, I knew Dwayne. I, I went to North Texas, and he was went to West Texas. But his friends, his people were friends with my wife's friend. So we had a chance to converse a little bit and talk. And I have been so, so fortunate to have been drafted by Pittsburgh. And it's the ownership, the leadership that allowed me to stay and mature. After my second year, my first year, we had a strike, and I went to, with all the guys, I was out on strike with the rest of the veterans, mm -hmm. and we were watching practice, the guys that walked in, and one of the reporters came up and started talking to me, saying, with the, with the one, one in 13 records, I ought to be out there practicing. Well, no. You know, I sped at him, pulling him. Yeah, man, and that was, that was, that was one of my worst moments. I had heard that initially you did not want to be drafted by the Steelers because it is it was a losing team. Is that true? That's true. That's absolutely true. The two years before they had been drafted by Pittsburgh, they won two ball games. And the year before they drafted me, they won two ball games. And they had this these uniforms with the big it was black, I think. Mm -hmm. Those gold jerseys. And I remember trying to be funny about it. I called him a Batman outfit. And I found out that Mr. Rooney designed it. So was, that wasn't very good. But anyway, no, no, no. Pittsburgh was one of 
three teams that I didn't want to go to, I think. It was the Steelers, Buffalo, and Green Bay. And so here we are all these years later in Pittsburgh, and there's a couple of things I want to ask you about relative to that part of it. Number one, when Dan Rooney went to the Hall of Fame, he asked you to be his presenter. What did that mean? Oh, my. That was such a joy and a treat for me. For Dan, he was one of the owners that we would call an icon mm-hmm. in the National Football League at that time. And he had friends, associates, people that he worked with, dealt with for all those years that he was in the league. And he chose me to be his presenter. I mean, he, the guy was right there in his fray, face, and he could have chosen. It wouldn't have been any problem at all. Charles Henry Noel. Mm, yeah. Chuck Noel. Mm, no. And I said, my goodness. He's talking about some sleeps and snipes trying to figure out what that might want to say. Mm. It's presenting him that I was truly honored, honored beyond any means. I was, that was a special treat. I mean, I think that you're generally regarded as the foundation, the pillar for those four championship teams. Now, when you came in, what did you do to start to try to change the culture from that one in 13 to recover? What did you do? Oh, I acted so bad. Oh, gee. Oh, I fought with Cleveland every test I had. We played the Vikings up there in, I think it was that state in Bloomington. Yeah, the Met. Yeah. Well, they had the visitors and the whole team on the same side. And I got into it with a, with, with some lineman over there, left guard, and I tell you, I got tossed out of that ball game because I was, when he went to the bench, I went to my bench in two years. <laughs> two benches on the right side of the field. That is just crazy to think of. Yeah. Still was, and part of the silly things that I did, and I wasn't thinking of any particular outcome other than it was something that occurred at the moment, and that's what I supposed to deal with it the way I was dealing with it. Over time, taking that moment that some others, the ones I had with Cleveland and Houston and Denver, and I never had one of those with the Raiders. Of all teams. How about that? Maybe you could have been a Raider, you know? Well, I also heard, though, that, you know, how every time a rookie comes into the year, they go through certain initiation processes, stuff like that. Now, another thing I heard is that you extended that for Lynn Swan. Not only did he have to get donuts his first year, you may have given him his second year. He did the second year. I don't know if it was me that made him do it. <laughs> but Lynn was Lynn one of those guys that you, you just got to love him, you know. So it was Lynn Salon and John Starworth. You know, they were always, I don't know if they were picking on me, I was picking on them. But at the end of the day, they ended up running away from me because I was chasing them out of this bodily home. Sure. <laughs> so some kind of way, I guess I maybe got a little threaded on Swan and you know he was a loving guy so he just said that he, he'd do that I'm not a rookie no more I'm right. gonna yeah <laughs> but we had a lot of fun together that was a part of that the chemistry of that team we had the guy that changed it for me before 72 69 my rookie year was 1-13 I think we won maybe 3 my second year 3 or 4 my third year about the same. And I was making Pro Bowls 
But my time in Pittsburgh as being a professional football player was not very fulfilling because we were losing. But in 72, we drafted Franco Harris. Franco brought a whole new asylum to our football team. Had it to. Really? Yeah, that we could win. We could win. We could win because when we gave the ball to Franco, Franco made something happen. The stands were magic. They were, they got involved and they got in behind Franco and the Taylor. It was fun being at the stadium. We felt as a football team that we had a chance to win because Terry could hand the ball off Franco and nobody could throw the ball Bradshaw. I mean, it wasn't a pass he couldn't complete. He believed it. Terry called his little plays. He got almost murdered. It's pretty incredible, too, is that we sit here now in Pittsburgh where you are just this legend, and you think about all the relationships that you had with these guys, and not even just the guys you played with, but the, the guys after and, and the generations on and on. And so here we are from Mel Blunt's event, and I just get this sense that the chemistry, the bond between the players and coaches and on the Steelers was just incredible at a time when it wasn't free agency. So guys stayed with the team for, for many years. What was that like to develop the bond with the guys you played with and as lifelong friends, really? Mr. Bell, that is very true. What happened? What made it happen? And to be a part of it. I don't know when it started, but we would always say, you know, those tough things, you got to love it. You got to love it. And every now and then somebody would say, they would look at a guy that was, you know, he was getting, having a hard day. And somebody would say, you got to love it. And that's like getting a, an infusion of, of new energy, new attitude. But it, it was kind of hollow until Franco came. Mm-hmm. Franco came. You know, we started to put some wins together. We had a close one down in Dallas Cowboys. We came back to history. We beat the Chiefs, who had been playing Super Bowls. The Dolphins, not the Dolphins, but the Vikings. We beat the Vikings, who had played in the Super Bowl. And we started to feel pretty good about ourselves. And that is when all of this started to happen. We did, I think Dwight White came in 71. Mm-hmm. Ernie Halls came in 71, Pell Sick came with me in 69, and we started to play pretty good defense. Mel Blood was over there on the right corner, and Andy Russell was there, Jack Hale was there. We were not bad on defense, we had Mike Wagner playing safety, so things started to look up for us, and we started to feel that we could win. And we did until we got to the AFC Championship offense who were yeah. defeated. Yeah. And that was the best I'd ever felt while we lost the ball game because I just knew I felt like having a party because I thought that this team is different than the team that I was a part of in 69, 70, 71. It was different. Something changed, yeah. Something changed. Let's rewind let's go back okay let's go back to your days at north texas state and even a little bit before that maybe when you were in high school when did you know that you were going to be great when did you say to yourself i'm pretty good oh that never happened that never happened why 
You know, when you play the neighborhood football or basketball, whatever it is, you know, you get on your bike and you play in one neighborhood, you play football, another neighborhood, you play basketball, then you play baseball and until the sun went down. Well, when I was playing football, I was probably 10, 11 years old in the neighborhood. Me and another guy, both of us probably about five foot tall and almost four feet wide. The best athletes, okay, you got two guys. They, these two pretty good players. They're going to be the captain of the team, but they get a chance to choose. Me and another guy, we were always the last guy chosen. Last oh, guy. Goodness, yes. And it's hard to believe now. Yeah. Last guy chosen. And I remember the first game playing in the high school. Uh, Dunbar High School in Temple, Texas. Dunbar High School. Dunbar Panthers. Yeah. Did that motivate you when you were always the last one chosen? How did that did that push you to where what you became? <laughs> I'd like to think that some good came out of it. But, you know, I over time, I think you start to, the competitive juices started to find themselves. They started to rise up. And one particular time when I, I was playing, I put the uniform on and playing defensive tackle as a freshman. I was getting killed. A good friend of mine was playing middle linebacker. He didn't play real well because I kept letting the guy off of him. He was fussing at me. And I think things started to change my sophomore year. I had this little girlfriend that I was trying to like, and I think she liked me. And she'd come to the games, and I would be embarrassed if I got beat up on the football field, if I lost the battle. So I started to do things to keep me from losing a bound, which was sometimes a little bit over the edge, but I started to win some of those battles. And somewhere around that time, they made me, took me off the deepest line, made me a middle linebacker, and I was still covered as a softball up for those two gluten 45 pounds and the linebacker. So, you know, it's always a better story when there's a romance involved. <laughs> so who knew that you were motivated because you wanted to win over the delay? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I, did. I couldn't stand being embarrassed in front of her. But getting beat, it didn't beat up. It didn't hurt me as much as when my teammates were all on me about it. And they were classmates. A couple of them, we played ball with this women sophomores together, you know, where your friends and neighborhood guys go out and play, you know, you always want to do well. But when I started playing middle linebacker, I was, I couldn't cover, but I could shoot, I could go after. I remember that. I remember that. Now, do you remember a guy that was played, that played wide receiver for the New York Jets, named Eddie Bell? Not really. The name sounds familiar. He's in Waco, Texas. Played at Carver High School. Played those guys, and he caught a flare pass out wide in the flakes, and I was hauling it to go get him. When I hit him, I knocked him into one of the light stands. Oh, the lights. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Why? Eddie was, he was the guy that was the fastest guy in the, the, the car. And you caught it. Caught him with him like that. A good angle. Yes. Did you have any unique training? things that you went through back in the days. I mean, that that kind of speed in those days, and they didn't have all these training facilities that guys go to nowadays and all that. What did you do back in the day to to hone your skills and get ready for a season? Well, I didn't do anything 
to tell you the truth, I was the worst guy in the world when it comes to working out and training. Gee. That's what training camp was for, huh? Yeah. <laughs> hey, during those days, I didn't hit a lick before we got to training camp. I suffered. But, you know, when you, and I think sometimes when you are down and out like that and you suck at it all, you reach and get it. You reach down and get something that you didn't know you had. And that's what it was about. The only time that I can remember that I did something and it wasn't associated with football, it was when I was still in the shot put in high school. Really? And we didn't have any weight machines or any weights. And I recall getting, well, can't think of this guy's name for, for sure, but I read this book, this book. He was the Olympic American Olympic champion in 1954 with the shot put and the discs. Mm-hmm. And I read upon his technique how he glided off the circle and how he trained for lifting weights. And we didn't have any weights. So I found a bar and two five-gallon cans and put cement in. Really? And started lifting the weights. Yeah. I went from being being perennial fifth and sixth place guy at the shot, but never could get the rhythm down and think that's good to not losing any mates from my journey as saying you didn't want to stay championship at Prairie but wow. But that was the only time that I remember really working to get better. Hey, I'm the worst guy going to you know, Terry Bradshaw teases me to this day about running for that laps. Uh, I wasn't the guy. I was the guy. But it seems like, and just from everything I know and just listening to you too, that like you said, the competitiveness, the attitude, the mental acuity to figure out, you know, how to get it done. I mean, that was as, as integral to your success as anything, wasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I don't can't be that jibber-jabber running your mouth and all the time I'm figuring out, can I get this guy? How can I beat this guy? What can I do? I'm trying to figure out how I can I get in your butt. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what you do. I mean, I'm not looking to get a dance and shake my booty. Yeah, the sight of that, but okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I got you. They're the same. Yeah. Golly. But, but hey, Joe. The, the spin forward here to your career and one of the iconic moments was that commercial. Uh, I know that, that's a that's a big leap, but when you think about kind of your image and reputation and the, the nickname, what did that commercial do in terms of defining your persona and maybe even changing the perception of Mean Joe. And then just for our audience, just for clarity, we're speaking of the Coke, the famous Coca-Cola commercial with the kid, you know, because they may mm-hmm. know what. Well, you gave him a jersey, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was night and day. I was over here in terms of perception of Joe Green to over here, daylight. I was here, I was, I had a frown and I had a grin, and over here I was smiling. And the Coca-Cola commercial helped make Joe Green approach him mm-hmm. to kids and little old ladies that had no idea that I played football. It was really special, you know, and there were times when 
the first time I realized that the impact that it had, we were playing in the, in the pro ball out of Hawaii, and we were practicing and practicing, and we were all a, a junior high football. And I guess they had recess or something. But when we were out on the field, I remember seeing all the kids that came, ran past the offensive guys, OJ, the quarterback, Bob Luisi, people like that, and wide receivers, Paul Warfield, came over the lane and wore a lot of crap. And that is something that doesn't happen, but it's in my mind. So that made me want to be a nicer guy. Okay. You know, <laughs> it did. It really did. I'm still working. You, do you remember that when you shot that commercial? How much, how many, because part of the commercial was to say that you drinking the Coca-Cola. How many Cokes did you have to drink that day? How many takes did y'all have to? Oh, gee, I had, I think, 18, 18 of those big Cokes. You saw the take like it and then spit it out as a practice. We'll practice while we were doing that, I was so naive that I didn't want to supposed to be a product of our life. I couldn't, I said, I can't spit it out. So I swallowed it all. Oh. Every one of them. All 18. Not 17, not 20, 18. <laughs> Remember. And then they said, okay, let's see if we can get something in the kid. And that's when I turned that thing up and opened my mouth, and all that could come out was a bird. That's the bird. That's why the bird. Because I drank all of those pops. And I was so lying that I could not think of myself of dumping it in the can, you know, swallowing it. So, but that was special. My lawyer then brought that commercial to me. And I said, I can't do that. I can't act. And they said, well, it's, you can't say no to the biggest brand in the world. That's something there. No. So what do they want me to say? And he brought me the script. And I said, well... Maybe I can do it. So I, I think what really helped me with this was I was, heck, I was all kind of on the shot side. And the director and the people who really, he said that, because I was trying to express to him about it, hey, I was about this. He said, well, you take coaching, don't you? And you got a coach there. Well, that's what I do. I'm, I'm going to coach you. And I said, okay, I'll just try to follow the instructions. And they had people there on the, on the set they were actors and actresses. They were, we were in a suburb. I think. We were in New York area. And some of the people that were daytime television, soap operas, they were there, some of them. And they said, just do what you do. You fall there. You just be natural. So all of that was was very calming to me. It helped me out a lot. I didn't have to do a whole lot because it was just a little, little script. But for someone like me, it was very scary. Yeah, so I wiggled my way through it. We got through, and the kid, Tommy, he was special. We played catch with the ball, and he changed it a little bit, my my lines. But it was good nature. Afterwards, when I saw it for the first time, the commercial, it was during a a baseball playoff the night over. Yeah, and I was watching it with my wife, and I said, gee, that wasn't too bad. She said it was good. One of the greatest commercials ever, and especially every, and it comes up all the time when they talk. Yeah. Super Bowl ads and everything. So for everything that you accomplished on the field, yeah, it's great to have that type of moment, too, associated with everything that you 
Yes, she. She is. It is. All of the things that I have done on the football field to destroy the image of being nice, Joe. Nobody would let me be nice. Let me be me. I'll tell you, I've been blessed that everyone, many people, think that I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I'm, I like that. Four Super Bowl victories. Which of your Super Bowl victories do you believe had the best team and which was the most satisfying? Well, I think probably the best team was Super Bowl thirteen, And I say that because the defense was still at its apex. It was still pretty good. But the offense had come along really well. Franco running football, Bradshaw, and Stallworth and Benny, Cam- Benny Cunningham catching the ball. We had Mag West, Westhead. At some center, center, yeah. Sam Davis at Bull Mothers at the guards, and we had John Colfo came in with me at the left tackle, and we had Larry Brown at the right tackle. We played offense, we played tight end in Super Bowl nine. Mm. Caught a touchdown pass. Larry was like probably six five. He could sit where you sitting right there. He probably could touch that wall with lawns. Larry was. I don't think Larry ever made the Pro Bowl or All Pro. So was John Cole. Yeah. Those guys just did not, because they didn't have the physical stature from the standpoint of size. Kobe, John Cole, who's 55, he probably weighed somewhere between 255 and 260. Sam Davis, the left guard, was 250 pounds. Webby was like 255. Bull was 248, 250. In today's games, they, they're lightweights. Right. But everyone who yeah. You know, you told me one time when you were scouting players and working with Bill Nunn that the appreciation for footwork went to another level. What was that about? Especially even in talking about linemen and, and, and scouting them. Well, that's what when we'd sit there in the meeting with the field with him, look at the tape, Bill would always say, look at his feet, look at his hips. King, look at his feet, look at his hips. They made it. Depending at the way he's studying, because he fed what he's making. When he moves it in the seat, see the shoulder width apart, well, they click. You can see that if the shoulder width apart, you still have some bags. He has power. If they're close together, you can dip all. And those are the little tidbits that you guys And he had me out a lot. Feet, waist, knees. He goes back to when he was watching baseball. <laughs> really? Okay. He's got some stories for him. He was a wonderful storyteller. I can just imagine what it was like for you to, to work with him day to day, getting ready for the draft and scouting the college kids. Yep. You talk about twits, quit twits. Mm-hmm. The guys that didn't take, he'll say, look at that take. You follow that guy have an opportunity to follow him for a couple of years, you'll see. You didn't. Attitude. Attitude was something that you could pick it up in, in one's play, but like the defensive lineman rushing the quarterback and then they throw a screen pass downfield. How long does it take that kid to react to that ball? Stop, change direction, and go to the guy that's catching the ball. And how close can he get to him? Sometimes the guys make the tackle. Other times they stop and run and look. Which one would you want? 
think I went to the guy who's going, yeah. you know, yeah. 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 And those are decisions that, you know, that we had to make. And Bill was very influential on, on stuff like that. You know, got to have a bad down. What does he do on the next day? Does he get into having a bad down? Does he try to redeem himself on the next day? But there's always another down. And that's why I, there's, I guess you could call that a bit of an ego thing. I am not going to have a down that I was bad at to start celebrating. Mm. I'm not going to have a down that I was good at to celebrate. Because the one that I was bad at might be coming right back. Yeah. So I like to talk noise, but I want to talk noise from the cat person. I don't want to talk noise looking up at you. <laughs> right. That don't make sense, does it? No. And that's what some of these guys do. Well, you know, they, where are you coming from with that kind of act? Let's play it again. And see, that's, I guess, going way back when I said I never did act up against the Raiders because they played ball. They played ball, and you had to play. They'd be all over you, but if you did. They'd kill you. So you had to be there in the moment and putting your very best to keep them from beating. Look at them. And every team that won, every team from the AFC, AFL, from the Jets to the Pittsburgh Steelers, with the Kansas City Chiefs, the Miami Dolphins, all of them had to go through the Ravens there to get to the Super Bowl. They would kill you. And we knew that. That brings me to a question. The last two decades, who, if anybody, have you seen that reminds you of yourself or that played the game the way you played it at your position? Let's just keep it at a 20-year span, the last 20 years. Oh, boy. I saw this guy in college, and he, it never happened for him with Rogers. Rodgers. Oh, what's his first name? Sean Rogers? Uh, yeah. Yeah, he was. He was. He had some quick feet too. Yes, he did. He, the guy that he was playing against, I think they were playing against Houston. He was beating this guy so bad, and then and beating so bad one time, the guy jumped on the back of his leg, towards Nicola. Came his never the same. That's enough. That guy, somebody in the that Warren did it a little differently, but he was he. He made some of the plays that I would like to open up. He had that attitude too, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yes, he, yes, he did. Uh, he did. Yes, he did. So all the guy that I liked a lot was the, was out of, out of that twenty years fighting, but it was Bob Lilly. Yeah, I was going back. Yeah, yeah that's a great one. Bob Lilly. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be able to get in the backfield as quick as he did. Use his hands, use my hands the way he did. You know, attack the blocker, buff. So you're considered by most the greatest stealer ever. You know, and I don't want votes. Well, I know you probably wouldn't accept that, but I think most people would consider you the foundation, the greatest stealer ever. Who's the best player you ever played against and the best one? <laughs> you make a lot of people angry. Especially the second one. Yeah. <laughs> Gee, is Larry Lemon going to sit We can we can make that happen. Larry, he's so he's such a fun guy. Yeah, old man. It's uh, Larry go, hey, who's he sitting? I don't say Larry. He's gonna call me. He didn't feel calmly for sure. We played a, 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 a game, preseason game, and Larry was holding me. I'm fussing at him, and I kicked at him. 
He said, I kicked him. I said, I kicked that him. Ooh. And Larry turned around and looked at me and put his hands down. So, why? And, you know, all I had to do was look at him. Put my head down and walk away. I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, Larry, piece of work. But the guy, the guys that put fear in me was guys like War Number 32. Mm. OJ. Yeah. Yeah, because they, you know, they will score. The defensive guys, you try to stop people or fight. So, Juice and Jim, I could see him on TV. Never saw him, never played against him. Gail never played against Gail. But I can all imagine what it would be like when you play against OJ and you know, Earl. Earl could run over you, through you. But if he, if, if he got to the side and hey, where he could get in a foot race, he could have run it. But he didn't have that that quick, he didn't make, he didn't use it to abort you and then get into it. That wasn't his game. Name was, it was dangerous. That's all, I guess what I'm saying. And guys that I played against, I'm playing against, that's, that was my, you know, I, you gotta deal with the, Offensive lineman, if you're a defensive lineman. That's not my job. My job is to get the guy with the ball. Mm. That's kind of the way I always looked at it. You win some and you lose some. Their job is to stop. My job is to get the guy with the ball. That's the mindset that I had. And if I had to change that a little bit in football, if this is on beating that guy in front of me, maybe I'd have had a better career. Well, you, I don't know how you could have had a much better career than you had, but. Okay, that is something. So you talked about Franco and kind of, you know, how he had such an impact on everything that went down with building those championship team. All these years later, we lose Franco. And you're lifelong friends. Well, how do you deal with that? Or how did you process that? He wasn't the only one. You brought other teammates. That was just devastating. It was December 22nd. Probably around five o'clock that I got a call from the doc and he was calling from Franco's phone. They said, Mr. Harris. They said, No, Mr. Green, this is Doc. Franco's dead. Yeah. It shocked the world. We don't like goodness. My dad is dead. This was probably the worst two months I ever experienced. Yeah, I was Christmas, weekends, not not joyful, not joyful. And I spent some time, spent a lot of time in my bedroom, not leaving the house, not being able to sleep in. Until I spoke with Philip, Mel Blanc, Donishel, JT, one of them told me that, Zoe, you need to be thankful for the time that we spent with Franco. She's in a better place. Franco, Job was done. He is well done. He said the Lord called him. And he thanks the prayer. And he thanked him for the time that he had together. That had me out a lot. And it says a lot about the bond that you have with those teammates. You know, lifelong friends and you lean on each other. I can imagine that. Golly, I think about this a lot. What if I had the power to choose who I was going to be drafted and nineteen sixty nine. Oh, like when I screwed that up terrible. 
awful. Another, I'd have blown it out. <laughs> I didn't mess it up. You said that was because the, the Steelers was one he had on you. Oh, Lee, who knew? What What do you think you would have picked if you'd had that power? What team would you have picked? I like to, you know, my, probably my favorite team was one with Johnny Unitas, Mr. Spatz, Baltimore. Yeah. I keep forgetting. I keep that Italian name, the defense of the Oh, Mar- Marchetti. Gino Marchetti. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I watched those guys. They were special. They had some sweet uniforms. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they did. They did. They did. Just, just plain and neat looking at it. Yeah. That's good. You know, I read about this guy, looked at him, Parker. Mm-hmm. I bet you nobody ever slapped him side the head. No, he wasn't taking it. <laughs> oh, no, Jim Parker. Yeah. No, I saw him. Yeah. Nobody would have slapped him in the head. He, think about it. What would Deke have to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's got something to say. I would never have the opportunity to ask him about Jim Deacon was quite a character. I know you got to know him at playing at the same time, and then all the years in the Hall of Fame community with Deacon Jones. Yeah. Was he like one of the most hilarious guys you ever? Yeah. Put? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Deacon was, he was a fun guy. Deacon Speaking about Deacon, all of those guys that go on in that era. Today, we're talking about Hall of Famers in. If you're a Hall of Famer and you have an opportunity to go to the Hall of Fame, you got to go. You got to go. Because Jim Taylor is no longer alive. Gail Sells and Willie Davis is no longer going to be dead. Bart Starr, Donnie United, Well, let me say this. My first year in 87, and I went to, as that class did, Go to what what is being called now the Ray Nitsky Luchin. It is incredible. Only Hall of Famer. The year I was there, I got, you know, they asked the new inductee, give you the mic here, talk. And I said, when I was growing up, I watched Willie Davis. All in there two minutes ago, they have to. My daddy. Yeah. Jim Taylor, Bart Starr, number 64, the right guard. Jerry Kramer. The creamy. I saw you guys. I did not like. I wasn't a Green Bay fan. I'm here today, being a recipient of four Super Bowl rings, and that was tough. That was not easy. You guys, boy, I'm gonna tell you right now. I understand. I said I didn't like you guys. I'm changing my opinion. I'm admiring you guys for doing what you. That was the highlight of my time of being at the. Hall of Fame. So, like, greatness knows greatness, right? I mean, you could recognize class when you're a class individual. You can recognize, you know, yeah. having, having experience. Yeah. And that's also, if those guys weren't, weren't there, I wouldn't have had a, an opportunity to say that and feel the way that I felt about watching them play. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying this because it felt good to me. It was off a moment for me, but I'm also talking to the guys that dying to be in the Hall of Fame and don't show up when they get invited. Huh. Okay. Yeah. A little different different era now, isn't it? With yeah. guys. Yeah. And last question, because I, I think we're running out of time, but Mr. Great, for 
all of the young kids out there, whether they're at the high school level, college level, even at the pros who aspire to get to that level, to the Hall of Fame, what piece of advice would you give them in that book? Listen to your coaches and take care of your bodies and grow your awareness about what you want to do and what you want to become. And listen to people that have been there. You should go. Well, I said, I would say, thank you for joining us. It's been an extreme honor today, Mr. Gladdy. Thank you for letting me here in your company and space and things that I like seeing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's great pleasure. It's always good to see you, Joe. And to actually have the opportunity to flack with you is, is special. You remember those days when you used to come to the state of state where nobody had ever too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but hey, it's a definite tradition now, this franchise and this team. And you had so much to do with building that, too. That's yeah, great. Well, I'd like to thank our audience for joining us on another episode of HOFs, a.k.a. Hall of Famers. Stay tuned for the next episode, and thanks for joining us. That's a wrap for today's deep dive into the sports world. Next time, we'll be back with even more stories of triumph, irresistible debates, and, as always, a high-level look into the lives of eternal legends. Give Hall of Famers a like and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Want to keep the convo going? Join in the debates and stay in the know with all things Hall of Famers on social media for exclusive behind-the-scenes content and a chance to link up with fellow sports buffs and our crew. Until next time, keep reaching for the stars.